Hello and welcome to the Phenomena Podcast. Today I'm joined by Maria Curry and Mikkel Krenkel, both partners at RED, to talk about belonging. Why you could say there's currently a crisis of belonging, the new forms of belonging that we see emerging, and how these challenges and changes may have important strategic implications for businesses. Mikkel and Maria, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. So firstly, can you tell us why have you been thinking about belonging a lot recently and and how is this a topic that you think deserves our attention at this particular moment? Yeah, of course, Elliot. We have done so much research in and around this topic over the last many years. We've done research on how young adults build identity and camaraderie. We've done research on how companies are creating the future of work and thinking about what's happening in a remote first or hybrid work context. We've done all this work on friendship and how do people build connections and the role of physical and online spaces in connecting and so on. It's really a topic that just comes up again and again and again across all the work that we do. And there are a lot of questions circulating right now that are sort of obvious around how companies can create a sense of belonging in a world of hybrid and remote work. But I think the much more critical questions here are not just corporate questions. They're they're really societal questions. And specifically, I worry that changes in how we create belonging, the changes that we're seeing in the work that we've been doing over the last couple of years, those changes in how we create belonging will deeply exacerbate much bigger societal issues. Issues like loneliness and the loneliness crisis that we're facing. Issues like mental health. Issues like political polarization. Uh, In a 2018 study by the Kaiser Foundation, they they found that one in five Americans said that they always or often felt lonely or socially isolated. It's really sort of across the world where people report having fewer friends, uh, fewer social connections, which in turn leads to mental health issues, which in turn means that it's easier for us to sort of follow our tribal nature and polarize our politics and so on and so forth. So in that sort of increasingly polarized world uh, where some of the problems we face are problems like climate change that we can only solve through collective action. I think there are few issues that are more important than the question of what binds us together? How do we build a sense of belonging with each other? What makes us care for one another? What makes us feel, you could say, on the same team? And in that, for a long time, work and school have been sort of for better or for worse two really critical sources of identity and belonging in people's lives. And what we're seeing is that school and work as a source of belonging is is increasingly diminished. So then what takes its place? So there, I mean, we have things like like TikTok that suddenly come onto the scene in the last couple of years. We sometimes talk about TikTok being almost like a belonging machine. One part of the magic of TikTok is that it makes you feel like you're part of something, even when you're sitting by yourself, looking at your phone, just consuming content at 2 a.m. It creates belonging, but often it's sort of a passive type of belonging. It's almost like empty calories, you could say. And that's really the big concern, that as a society, we have less and less good, healthy belonging. We have less of a sense of community with people who are different from us. Uh, We have fewer deep conversations, fewer friends, uh, fewer interactions in in a normal sense of the word. Fewer things where we feel a sense of belonging with other people because we have accomplished something together or because we're fighting for something together. 
And instead, we fuel up on what you might call artificial belonging. We get the empty calories of TikTok, of fandom, of following, of feeling part of a group just because you seem like the rest of the people in that group, but you actually don't ever interact with them. So that's, to me, a huge concern is that we are living in a world where the way in which we create belonging will exacerbate loneliness, will exacerbate our mental health issues, will exacerbate the political polarization that we see. So, Maria, could you just give us a sense from a social scientist point of view of what is belonging? Yeah, so let's start with the function that belonging plays in society. So in our research, even uh, before the pandemic, we've seen that people, especially young people today, they're seeking a sense of stability in the world, a world that they perceive to be really volatile and, and fast changing. And the way that they achieve this feeling of stability is actually through belonging. And so if you have that as the backdrop, it's like, what does belonging do, right? And belonging helps us by balancing both an intimate network that we can confide in and be vulnerable, and also this uh, broader network that we can tap into for the things that we need down the line, resources, information. We also use belonging to create these kinds of spaces where we can understand our own identities a bit more and experiment with different parts of ourselves and who we want to be, how we want to project out in the world and, and in different communities. So that's the function of belonging in society um, that we've seen in our work. But what is belonging really, if you stop and think about it? And what we've found is that belonging is not just one thing. There are different types of belonging. There are different types of relationships that we have in our lives that provide a sense of belonging in slightly different ways. And this matters because different types of belonging can provide us with different positive things in our lives, whether whether it's connections or knowledge to get ahead or a space to be vulnerable and experimental. It's not always just one thing when you have this feeling of belonging. Um, and to give kind of a few uh, examples, so some of the ways in which we feel belonging, they might take a really long time to develop and be really intimate. You know, we might feel a sense of belonging because we have memories together or we've been vulnerable with one another, so friends or romantic partners, or we might have a sense of belonging to a community that we all go to. It has a physical space. There are some shared um, cultural practices that we might do together, like in churches or universities or even just, you know, around the neighborhood. And then some of the ways that we feel belonging, they might be tied to this broader network of people that we um, haven't met in real life, right? And these might be really quick to develop. We might feel a sense of belonging because um, we just share a common interest um, and hobby. And we might have a sense of belonging because we engage in similar topics or we have similar experiences, even if they're not identical. So um, we might meet someone and identify together as, as being children of immigrants or first-gen college students um, or be really keen on you know, the crypto community or something like that. And and even if we don't actively engage uh, in those topics, there's a sense of familiarity that's um, comforting and useful. 
Thanks for spelling out why it matters and, and, and what belonging is from a social science perspective. Tell us, what do you see that's changing around this topic of belonging, Maria? Well, people are experiencing the decline of institutions that they once could rely on to support them. So traditionally, there are institutions in our daily lives that provide a sense of belonging. So schools or universities, even sources of authority like the government that kind of provide guidance, our neighborhoods. And we see a kind of decline in these institutions and people's trust in them, um, how relevant people feel these institutions are. So that's one reason for the decline. The other is there are just fewer social interactions, at least in person, especially recently with the pandemic and people being stuck at home. But even before that, we saw people needing to move away for work or for whatever other reason. Um, people don't live and die in the same places, um, so they're much more distributed. And something else that's changing about belonging, especially since the pandemic, is there's a fundamental questioning of how much belonging we should feel specifically from uh, the workplace, from our work, our colleagues, and what role our work plays in, in feeling belonging. And what's interesting is that while you have a decline in these traditional sources of belonging, there's actually now at the same time an explosion of ways in which we can feel a sense of belonging in how we socialize online. So we have interest groups that we can follow or be part of. We can message one another in groups. And if we look specifically at TikTok, it provides people with a huge sense of belonging. It's quite easy to go onto the app, be fed with content, videos that you want to watch uh, or that you suddenly realized you want to watch. And um, we can quite quickly feel connected to an influencer. We can see a kind of silly dance on TikTok uh, and we see that lots of people are doing it and maybe we decide to get a group of friends together and we, and we quickly learn the dance too and we post the video and we feel like we're part of a broader group. Okay, so you know, as you describe these shifts away from institutional, traditional forms of belonging into these new digital forms of belonging, um, what are your concerns? What, what are the problems that emerge? Yeah, I mean, one way to think about this, and this might be funny coming from a sociologist, but it's almost, you can almost think of this in terms of supply and demand, right? That what we're seeing is that the supply of this source, the way in which we create belonging historically is much lower than it used to be. We have fewer ways to create belonging in the classic ways of, you know, meeting people through work or being part of something together and so on. And we have much more supply of new kinds of belonging uh, that you can build online on TikTok and all these fast new ways. It's not just TikTok, obviously, we see the same happening in the kinds of communities people are building on Reddit in so many aspects of life. And my concern really is that the supply of new belonging, so to speak, is a lot of empty calories. That it's belonging that doesn't quite create the type of social infrastructure and social glue that we need as a society. That it's belonging that might satisfy your emotional need to feel part of something, but does not satisfy our societal need to build connections across socioeconomic differences 
or that solves our uh, societal need to actually get people to do something together, not just feel part of something together. So that's really uh, my concern is that it leads us towards a world where we are even more tribal than we are today, and at the same time, even more passive and less engaged. So, Mikkel, why is it that on these digital platforms where people are experiencing belonging, you can't derive the benefits that you've just mentioned, you know, gathering the collective compulsion to do something together. Why does it remain at that superficial level? So, you know, that's a really tricky question because it's not that you can't digitally. And Maria, maybe you should speak to this. Uh, this is a lot of what our research has actually been about is it's not that digital belonging is unlike in-person belonging fundamentally. It's that the ways in which digital belonging has been built so far often pushes us in the wrong direction. At the same time, though, it's a more complicated picture because some of the deepest types of relationships and belongings that we've encountered in our fieldwork have been ones that, for example, start online and gradually you might meet this person or this group of people in real life. Or it might just be a relationship that plays out um, completely online, but you feel like you can be your deepest, truest self in a way that you can't in the community that you physically live in. Um, so there are many examples of our online lives actually enabling us to feel a sense of belonging that we couldn't otherwise, really. So if belonging can emerge in digital spaces, from the data you have, why is there cause for concern about the way we live today, like more of our lives being spent on social media? I think it's more that the kinds of belonging that are on the rise are not all healthy belonging, or at least I would think and say so. It's uh, belonging that allows you to be passive rather than active, uh, that allows you to sort of feel belonging at a distance without actually engaging with communities and engaging with other people which I think is overall not so healthy for society, is belonging that tends to be more delineated along the lines of what you're already interested in or people who are similar to you, as opposed to tying us together across differences. So I think the big question is not that, that you cannot create the good kinds of belonging digitally. It's just that that's not what's happening. These tools allow us to feel a sense of belonging quite easily, right? Like well, now we're part of this bigger trend or a bigger movement, but it doesn't necessarily give us the, the different types of benefits that we get from the different types of belonging. So it doesn't necessarily translate, for example, into mobilizing a group of people towards uh, the collective action that they wanna see in society, or it doesn't necessarily give you the connections that you need to get ahead in life when you're looking to switch your career, um, or it might not give you a space where you can really be vulnerable uh, and intimate and share aspects of yourself that you're otherwise not able to. Great. Thanks for sharing those observations on how the nature of belonging seems to be changing. What are the implications of these changes on businesses? Obviously, I, I'm concerned about this at a societal level, but I also think it's actually an opportunity for businesses because I do think there's a growing need for building deeper belonging, for actually making connections with people. 
Because again, we have fewer and fewer avenues for doing that. We have fewer and fewer avenues to get to know people on a deep level, to become part of a community that you have invested heavily in, not just one that you're part of because you're following a creator on TikTok. That's a source of value to people that is really, really deep and meaningful. But we have fewer and fewer things that allow us to do that. Now, how can businesses help with that? Well, one is that their products can do that, right? You can build digital products that actually bring people together. You can build physical products that are worth gathering around and so on. Uh, but you can, of course, also think about how you build brands that enable communities, not just build communities. I feel like it's a very trendy thing in the brand world to say like, well, what's, you know, who feels belonging to our brand and what's our community? That's one thing, sure, it's, it's possible to do. But just as importantly, I think it's possible for brands to be objects that other people gather around. Uh, I'm thinking about the kinds of things that you, you, you want to come together around because it's joyful to bring uh, snacks to a meetup or the kinds of things that facilitate people actually meeting up and doing something together. Collaboration tools that allow people to actually get stuff done together. All of these can be enablers of belonging when framed right. I think... It's important for businesses to consider the types of belonging that they're creating through their products or services. I think many, especially digital uh, services or products today would say, well, uh, we have social as a layer, therefore we are creating belonging. And, and that's not necessarily the same thing as belonging. And it's important to understand what are uh, the different benefits that come with belonging, that people are seeking or that feel most uh, like the right fit for the type of product or service that you have. Um, is it about identity and experimentation? Is it about kind of getting knowledge or resources or the tools to advance in life? Or is it something else entirely? Um, what type of belonging are you tapping into and, and why, really? So that's interesting to hear you speak about the implications of these shifts in belonging to how companies think about the outside world, think about their brands and their offerings. But you mentioned in the start that it also has internal ramifications as they think about their culture and, and, and what kind of companies they're trying to build. Could you tell us a bit more about that, Mikkel? So the other side of the role of belonging in, in um, business is, of course, what can companies do to create a, belong a sense of belonging within their, their own walls? And that's a question that, honestly, I think has never been more important than it is right now. It feels like all of a sudden uh, a question that used to be mostly driven by, you know, folks in, in HR that had to have some sort of take on what's our employer valuable proposition and so on. Suddenly, this is a question that CEOs need to answer. They need to come up with a clear strategy for what kind of culture we're we trying to build here. How much do we need to be in-person versus remote? If we're hybrid, what does that mean? And throughout it all, one of the questions in the backs of their minds, of course, is like, what kind of community are we trying to create? What kind of belonging do we want people to feel to this job? And I think we see a lot of the same traps there, that the sort of the, the trap for companies is to try to over-index on sort of empty belonging, empty signifiers of belonging, right? The, oh, look, you are now part of this uh, group. And therefore, instead of calling you a colleague, we call you a Googler <laughs> or like these kinds of tropes. Or 
just because there's a foosball table, we think people will start feeling a sense of belonging with each other, or we need to force people to be in the office together in order to feel belonging. All of those, I think, are, are sort of missteps. We also see a lot of companies thinking of belonging uh, in a company setting in a way that's very similar to the ways that you talk about belonging in a family. And I think that's also a mistake, right? Um, so basically, it's really, really difficult for executives to navigate this because if you want to create belonging, what kind of belonging should you actually create within the, within the company? And I think that's the real challenge that uh, executives need to navigate nowadays. Yeah, so playing into the type of belonging that you feel at home or uh, playing into the type of belonging of being a fan of a kind of cult of personality or a, a particular um, kind of gimmicky culture in an office, those might not actually be the types of belonging that people are seeking in the workplace. And maybe it's actually about creating a space where you know you can be with people who will be equal uh, passionate for the subject matter that you're working on and it's just a space where you can really like geek out or maybe it's a sense of um, having shared experiences that you know can happen in person or remote but where you feel like there's a shared history that you've kind of built together and maybe playing into those types of belonging uh, would be more useful in answering this question of what is the future of the workplace. So considering what we've heard so far, what should be the new priority for leaders and decision makers as they try to get belonging right inside their companies and with their external stakeholders and customers? Yeah, the, the trick here is, of course, that belonging is a really, really complex social phenomenon. So uh, while, while it sounds uh, it's easy enough for social scientists like me to say, but I think executives need to get deeper into the social science of belonging. They need to actually take an interest not just in what employees say and think or what customers say and, and, and so on, but rather what actually binds us together. That means that they need to start looking at social relationships and culture and all these things that are between us rather than just what's inside of us. I think that's a it actually takes sort of a mind shift change for executives right? to, to start thinking of themselves as observers of our social fabric not just observers of people. Yeah, the, the social sciences are really about understanding the dynamics and norms and, and structures that connect us all to one another. And um, that can really help pinpoint the types of interactions that really enhance belonging and detract from belonging um, in different settings and situations. Last question now. Uh, for companies and organizations, what's the upside in grappling with this complicated topic and really firming up their perspective on belonging? Two obvious things come to mind. The simplest one is, of course, if you want to create a committed workforce where people have a reason to work in your organization beyond the sort of purely transactional reasons of like, well, they pay all right and the work isn't too bad. If you want to give people a, a reason to stay that's about the place itself, of course, you need to have a take on the kind of belonging that you want to create. So that's the first and sort of most obvious one, which has many direct implications for, for the, your ability to attract the right talent and keep the right talent and get them getting folks to work together in a productive way. 
But I do think that there's actually an underappreciated commercial opportunity here as well when it comes to products. And that's back to what we talked about a little bit earlier, but I think there's a real chance for companies to build products and brands that give people a reason to commune, give people a reason to come together around something and give people experiences uh, of working through something together that doesn't have to always be easy, but that binds people together nonetheless. So I think there's a, a real sort of commercial opportunity on the product and brand side that not many companies are, are grasping after right now. Those features will bring people together, but also bring people more closely to the product or service and feel like it's something that they uh, need in their lives or that provides a kind of value in their lives that tapping into not just belonging, but that feeling of um, stability that belonging provides. Thank you, Maria and Mikkel. That was Maria Curry and Mikkel Krenkel. Let's continue to explore by speaking to Dave Sikoyak. Dave has been studying belonging and applying what he's learned to businesses like Madison Square Gardens and Fox Sports for the last five years, with a particular focus on fans, leading to the book that he wrote together with Ben Valenta called Fans Have More Friends. Dave, welcome to the Phenomena podcast. Tell us how you came to be so interested in the topic of belonging. Yeah, I... I came to belonging almost accidentally, I, I would say. Um, you know, I was working in sports at, the, at Madison Square Garden, so the, the Knicks and Rangers, and I had brought Red in on a project to help understand the arena experience for Knicks and Rangers fans. Long story short from that project, one of the core foundational insight was to be a fan is to be part of a community. That what we were seeing with fans is the their engagement was very much based on their interactions with other people, whether it was close family, friends, or just random people working at Madison Square Garden. So it got me thinking into the power of this, but you know, I went off on my own, started consulting, and began working with Fox Sports. And when I began exploring other, other sports verticals, so we were looking at the World Cup in 2018, and college football, and the NFL, and Major League Baseball, college basketball, on and on, this insight kept coming back that we were seeing that the bigger fan you are, the more friends you have, the more you engage with those friends, the more you value those relationships. And then when we extend it out to family, um, the bigger fan you are, the more you value relationship with your mom, with your dad, with your siblings, with your extended family, with your spouse, with your children. It works in any type of relational setting that the foundational insight of to be a fan is to be part of a community proved itself out but that's when things really got interesting for us. We just proved out something we were seeing in the world. But then we were, as we were thinking about this, we were, said, well, if this is all true, then they should be experiencing a greater sense of belonging. And we began exploring measures of that, measures of well-being, uh, measures of confidence and loneliness and uh, optimism and gratefulness and you know borrowing these various survey batteries from psychology and what we saw time and again the bigger fan you are the more confident you are the more grateful you are the more optimistic on and on and on could you give us an example of a particular family or group that you studied where this connection between being a fan and building these healthy relationships seemed particularly strong dave so one of the stories that really uh, struck us, and we actually share this story in our book, was uh, somebody I met when I was working with the Knicks, um, Greg Armstrong, uh, season ticket holder at the time for, for 30 years, 
And so we explored his his life. You know, we went with Red over to his home and just you know talked to him about his life. And we went to his barber shop, his local barber shop, uh, and talked to him. And went to games with him. And I, I've gone to multiple games with him and seen him in, in various contexts. And what you see when you peel back the layers, you see there's so much of his social infrastructure that is dependent or or thrives in him being a Knicks fan. So, for example, he has an hour drive into the city to go to games. He often goes with one of his sons. And, you know, those drives are, you know, a feature, not a bug. Here's a half hour with your teenage son that you could talk on the way into the garden. And then here's two hours to three hours at a game where you can experience just the fun of being at a professional basketball game. And here's another half hour to go back home. And, you know, you meet Greg. He's wearing Nick's paraphernalia everywhere. Um, he is known online and, you know, within his social circles as that person. And every conversation starts with, what do you think about the Knicks? What about this game? What's that? What are they going to do? Are they going to make a trade? And then he, he kind of inserts himself uh, in places where you're in the Bud Light Lounge in Madison Square Garden, a, a kind of sponsored area. And you see images of fans there. Who do you see? You see Greg up there. He can walk around and people are like, hey, Greg, how's it going? What's going on? And, you know, talking about getting together or whatever. And here we are in, you know, what is known as the world's most famous arena. Greg Armstrong's walking around and people are saying hello to him, are, are reaching out to him. And the purchase decision wasn't about what was going on on the court. The, what he was buying was buying belonging. And it seems like an irrational thing to buy season tickets and spend all this time for a bad basketball team. But when you think of it as this is a relationship with son, relationship with people that sit in his section, relationship with people throughout Madison Square Garden, relationship to friends as he goes about the city or his his town upstate, it becomes like I, I saw it as a noble, like a noble investment. It's like, oh, man, I'm not doing something like this. It makes sense. You can imagine the benefits. I'd love to just ask you about that. So that really does sound like belonging. You seem in fandom to identified and to an extent to have really quantified a very rich and meaningful type of belonging. Could you tell us about some of the benefits that you've seen it play out in the lives of people, either problems it can fix or advantages it can bring? Yeah, so we tell another story in our, our chapter on loneliness and uh, talk about Jennifer, who was a Jamaican immigrant. She came to the U.S., I'm going to butcher the 10, 11 years old, and trying to fit in in American culture where she was going to a predominantly white school um, and as she described herself as I was this, this chubby uh, black kid with a funny accent, trying to fit in in that environment. Fast forward to present day, she's this dynamic, powerful, um, confident, um, intelligent, interesting woman, collected degrees, had a successful journey there. But when she points back to her coming to this country and the pivotal moments, it was her uncles who were already in um, Los Angeles took her to a Raiders game at the time. You know, and so she would have these regular Sunday family Sunday dinners. And, you know, as she described, the, the women would be in the kitchen and the men would be watching football. And she chose at a very young age to sit with the men. And her uncles would take her under a wing and talk about football, teach her how to throw a spiral and and all that comes with watching football as a kid uh, around adults. And she learned pretty early on as she was trying to fit in in the school environments that Football was the, the way she could connect with people. So she saw somebody with a jersey and she walked up to him and said, you know, you like football. I like football. We're friends. You're my people now. 
And, you know, coincidentally, that that relationship persists till this day from the schoolyard. And now looking back at it is like it was the tool. It was a tool for just starting those conversations. But it was also a tool that she had these strong relationships with her uncles that they took her under a wing and they, they taught her things. And she learned how to interact with something with adults on neutral ground that she developed knowledge there. And then as, as a woman, as she would go out and, you know, because we, we think women don't follow sports, female fans often encounter men kind of mansplaining. I guess that happens a lot. And but uh, with sports of like, oh, you're, you're just following because you like the guys or, or whatever. But they have these opportunities to flip it show their knowledge, show their command, um, demonstrate that they, they are actually a fan and following this. And it changes the dynamic. Not only does it give, as you know, Jennifer would talk about, give her confidence, give her a voice, but it also just shows that you can go out in the world and in, interact with people. So it really dawned on us that it's a tool. It's a device you can use, whether you're conscious or not of it. And, and Jennifer is one, one that was more conscious of it that creates belonging. Mm. Do you think that sports and the kind of belonging that you're describing is increasingly relevant now because it fills some sort of gap that's widening in the present world? Any thoughts on that? We've become divided. We are uh, There's almost two separate lives that can be lived in this country with two separate realities. Um, that's dangerous for our culture. It's dangerous because it ratchets up the disdain for the out-group. So as our in-groups become more solidified, the out-groups become more dif differentiated, and then you don't understand them, and then you, you have disdain for them. And that, that's the uh, American political story um, right now, where we don't really interact with people that are different than us. Sports becomes the thing that could actually bridge the gap. So we use the example of, uh, of the Dallas Cowboys, of a Dallas Cowboys fan, because... There are Republican and Democrat Dallas Cowboys fans. There's men and women. There's young and old. There's black and white. There's all sorts of religions. Being a Dallas Cowboys fan cuts across various identities. And what happens with that is those identities that polarize us matter a little bit less. If you are really into being a Dallas Cowboys fan, being highly educated or being an evangelical Christian or somebody who lives um, in a rural part of the country, which are all polarizing dynamics become slightly less important. I'm wondering, what does that understanding of belonging and fandom do for a, a sports club, do for a stadium, do, do for that industry? How are they going to build on that? What does it mean for better understanding and engaging fans? Yeah, this is, you know, the way we, we were talking about, this is Ben and I, my co-author, about, you know, what is the job that sports does for people? And th there is a particular view or the default view that we have is uh, sports is an escape. It's an entertainment vehicle. And the evidence we share in the book would say that is, is, it's almost like the direct opposite. Uh, no one's running away from anything to get to sport. People are running to sports. Sports is something they're not going for the escape. They're going for connection. Um, they're going to relate to other people. They're going to accumulate social currency that they, whether they will use it or not, allows them to, when they're walking through an airport or getting coffee or whatever, to talk about something. Often when we're, we're talking about or we're looking at the sports business and how, um, whether it's teams and leagues or different uh, players in the sports space are engaging fans, you, you often see it with this entertainment uh, mindset. Yes, sports are entertaining. And if they're not entertaining, we're not going to talk about it. So let, let's do that. But the job that it really does and the opportunity that exists for various players in the sports space of, 
of how how can we it's already creating belonging right on its own it's already creating belonging what would happen if various players in the sports industry thought about how to lean into that belonging so if you know an obvious uh, place to start is if you're designing a new arena often the conversations are about the new technology how it's set up the amenities that that exist there and it's all like service of the arena to the fan in that direction. But what if they also thought about fan-to-fan interaction? How can we accentuate more and more fan-to-fan interactions or just people-to-people talking within there? Those would make whatever engagement, whatever team more sticky. If you're building community around a particular thing, and it doesn't even have to be sports, that thing is going to become stickier with time if there's relationships that are supporting that. And I, I think it would be a dramatic shift instead of like looking at how, like how can we charge people more? And you know, again, I, I grant it's a business, so you, you need the money. Um, but also think about that fan experience because it really what our study and exploration of belonging through sports shows it, it, it's good for the person. It's good for the fan. It's good for you. It's good for others. It's good for society. So do sports teams, do sports leagues, you know, they have an opportunity to really lean into this and create more good and create more good in, in a very fractured society here. Like this is the thing that can universal, we can connect people at scale. What can we do to create more belonging, to create more fan to fan interactions, to make fee- people feel like they can just talk to anyone or, or create opportunities for them to talk to anyone? Dave, thanks very much. That was Dave Sikoriak, author of the book Fans Have More Friends. And that's the end of this episode of the Phenomena podcast from Red Associates. Mm-hmm.